Hi, everyone. Uh, welcome to the podcast. I'm here with uh, Chris Nicholson once again. Uh, today is October uh, 24th, uh, 2022, about uh, 1230 p.m. Uh, Pacific time through 30 Eastern. And we're here to talk about the latest in the uh, Russia-Ukraine uh, war. Uh, so, Chris, um, this is a map um, of Ukraine. Uh, what's going on now? What, what do you think is most interesting? What, what should people be looking for the next, say, days and weeks? Okay, so on the surface of things, the ground situation is actually not that much different than it was when we talked a couple of weeks ago. Uh, I think that we have been kind of in the calm before the storm. Uh-huh. And there are a couple of reasons why the, the actual territorial control hasn't shifted that much. Uh, one reason, first, let, let's, talk about, let's talk about two areas up here. And you can see that just today, for the first time in at least a week, there are reports, there are claims of Ukraine making some advances in villages mm-hmm. up here. Uh, so let's talk about this first significant area, the Svatova Kremina line. That's what I'll mm-hmm. call it. We have seen Ukraine kind of inching toward this for the last few weeks. Remember, most of this ground right here, they took during that blitz of Kharkiv. Mm-hmm. And <clears throat> they are still preparing to take uh, to take this line here, and Russia has been rushing mobilized men to defend it. They've what is this line? Is it, is it, what, is the, what is the law makes it a line? Is it a road? Is it a river? Yeah, there, is there's a, so first of all, I think what's really significant is that there's a highway that runs down between these two. There's a significant uh-huh. highway that they used uh, for the supply along this front. It's called the P-66 Highway. Uh-huh. And there's a river that they have to cross. Which river? What's the what river is that? This river? I don't know. I, I think this is a fairly minor river, but you can see here the P66 highway. Uh, right. That that's what people typically think is. Yeah. Where does that Where does that go down to? So P66, that goes down to Lahansk. Or do- you see, you see it coming down through here and probably going yeah. all the way up to the Russian border. Right. And how far does the P-66 highway go down? Looks here? like it cuts east. Yeah, no, cuts east, south. goes through uh, Severodonetsk, and then down. Yeah, these are the other areas we've seen fighting. Okay, so this is a big highway. And Ukraine basically has what's called fire control over much of this highway in this area. What that means mm. is that they don't have the ground control of the highway but it's well within range of basically almost all their artillery. So it's already very difficult for Russia to use this highway. Does that mean Russia also has ground? Does Russia also have that too? Does Russia also have the kind of of hit things? Well, I mean, Russia has no interest in hitting the highway that it controls. It's using it. Oh, okay. Yeah. But but yeah, uh, Russia can hit all, all the stuff along the front line. And so this... We have seen actually, this is actually one of those cases where we want to distinguish. I mean, it looks like there's no movement on this line over the last couple of weeks. So some mm-hmm. people could look at that and call it a stalemate, but the word stalemate mm-hmm. can be a little misleading because that could imply that nothing's happening. I think that things have actually been happening along this line over the last couple of weeks. Uh, it's just that the activity has been two-sided. Ukraine has made some advances. I think Russia has been making some counterattacks 
Uh, and there were reports of Russia using recently mobilized men in those counterattacks. So this gets to the issue we were talking about uh, a few weeks ago. Uh, will Russia be able to use mobilized men on the offensive? Well, mm -hmm. it has, to a small degree, been using some of them to attack here. And there were reports of Ukraine saying, we have withdrawn our men to more advantageous defensive positions. Mm. And you've got to kind of laugh because that's exactly the same that, thing that Russia says, you know, when it, when it makes withdrawals. Sometimes it's an excuse. Sometimes it's literally what it says. It's, it's not a big deal. It's just withdrawing to more advantageous defensive positions. Mm. But kind of the net sum of the activity so far has been that I think Ukraine has now, I think what we're seeing here with these captures today, I think this is Ukraine retaking villages that, that it had a week or so ago that Russia had mm -hmm. retaken with okay. mobilized men. So the mobilization worked, they took a few villages and then they were stopped and now Ukraine is reportedly getting them back. Yeah, so Ukraine is reportedly getting those villages it withdrew from back. Uh, and this is, it is now ba back as close to Svatova as it ever was. Uh, and whether it worked for Russia, unfortunately, I don't think we just have enough information to say. Uh, apparently, it didn't work in the sense that Russia no longer controls those villages. Uh, it might, there's also the question of how much Russia had to pay in lives to take those villages that it's now lost again. And Russia's mm -hmm. casualties have been pretty heavy, it seems, among the mobilized men that it's used on the offensive. Mm -hmm. uh, and we can talk about the Russian casualties in a bit after we kind of cover the rest of the state of the ground. Yeah. So I think what we're looking for in this area, big consideration, two big considerations. First, there's winter. Winter is coming soon. I, I mm -hmm. think that I think that it's probably going to start to snow pretty heavily within the next few weeks. Mm -hmm. Now, I don't think I said this on our last podcast, but when, when we were just texting, at the time I told you that I thought Ukraine had to make a significant offensive before winter hit. Mm -hmm. Now I'm reading that that's wrong. I, mm -hmm. I am reading Ukraine saying, no, we plan to conduct our counteroffensive during the winter. So they're stocking up on winter clothing, they're stocking up on ammunition, and it seems that uh, according to U.S. officials and Ukrainian officials, their plan is not to hunker down during the winter, they plan to advance during the winter. Mm -hmm. that, that is a little surprising to me, but I mean, it's doable. Apparently, the really big obstacle, the kind of the deadline, the end of the Ukrainian offensive window, is not actually the winter. It's uh, the muddy season when winter starts to trans transition into spring and the snow mm -hmm. melts and everything becomes muddy and all the, all the tanks and armored personnel car carriers, they get stuck in the mud. Yeah, this is when Russia launched the invasion. Right? Yeah, that, that, that's one of the major factors that was working against Russia back uh -huh. when it launched its invasion, uh, you know, eight or so months ago. Uh, it, that largely coincided with the muddy season. Uh, they have a name for it. I'm probably going to mispronounce it. Rasputitsa or something like that. Mm. It's roughly like that. Yeah. So Russia launched that and you would see all these, all these pictures of Russian tanks stuck in the mud 
and all these reports of Ukrainian farmers towing them away, well, mm-hmm. that was the effect of the muddy season. Yeah. Yeah, so that's so just that's further opinion. evidence that Russia Russia thought this would be easy. That the like the uh, sort of the what's in the party in the Washington Post that they thought they were just going to sort of walk in and overthrow the government. That must have been what they were thinking because they would have picked if they thought it was a real fight. They would have picked a different time of year. It seems like. Yeah. So over here we have we have both sides building up for the looming battle over Spatova and Kremina, and. Mm-hmm. Russia is laying down defensive lines. It's rushed to mobilize men there. The window for Ukraine to succeed here is maybe a couple months or so. Uh, I, I would expect Ukraine is going to start some more serious action within the next couple weeks, maybe. And it's got it's to win or stop within the next couple months or so, uh, maybe the next few months. I think the mud might start to hit maybe around three months from now. Mm-hmm. And That's another the, reason yeah. why the window starts to close in two or three months is that by that time, Russia will be ru- uh, rushing far more significant numbers of mobilized men to hold down this front. You mm-hmm. know, what it's rushed there now is just maybe 30,000. That, that's the number that Russia has been claiming, that it sent roughly 30,000 of the mobilized men to this front already within the first week or two of them being mobilized. And so obviously those guys, there was no time at all for them to train. They just got sent straight here because essentially it was an emergency. If those 30,000 had not arrived, this would probably be gone by now. Mm-hmm. And so it was an act of desperation and it has had some efficacy in freezing this front for the moment. Uh, in a couple months, the, the men that Russia is training will be available to further stabilize and reinforce this area. And so muddy season and mobilization are the reasons why Ukraine has to try and make its advances here within the next couple months. Mm -hmm. Now we go down to the Kherson front in the south, Mm -hmm. and that's really where Ukraine has been seeing greater success and rumblings of, of impending success. This is where we can expect to see significant changes sooner within the next week or two, possibly. Mm -hmm. So last time we talked, I think Ukraine had made significant advances and roughly this gray area is what Ukraine had around that time. And Ukraine has made some minor advances since then, but really it's still about both sides shaping and positioning for what's coming up. There have been recent reports within the last few days that Russia is basically preparing to withdraw from Kherson. That's what it has been wanting to do for a while. And Putin has just been saying no. He's not been allowing them to retreat because it's going to be a significant political blow. But at a certain point, the facts on the ground start to rule the politics. And one kind of interesting of analysis that I've read is that as the Russian troops retreat and concentrate into this smaller area, things Mm -hmm. become exponentially worse for them because this is largely an artillery battle and they become more vulnerable to the artillery, to the Ukrainian guns and rockets as they cluster in their, their men and material closer together. 
Mm-hmm. And and Ukraine also advances closer to the two main bridges across the river. And so I think right now uh, you measure it and roughly the Ukrainian line of control is within 40 kilometers of, of this significant uh, crossing. And I think this is where the dam is. I, I may be wrong. Does that sound about right to you? Okay. Uh, yeah. Oh, yeah. So this is uh, where the power plant and bridge are. Uh-huh. And so this is within 40 kilometers of the front, which means that Ukraine does have a few things that can hit out this far. So it has been shelling this bridge. Yeah. Uh, so the, the dam is right on the bridge, right? Yep. I'm pretty sure. I'm pretty sure yeah. they're basically the same thing. And right. what what flow if you if you hit the uh, if you hit the, the they said the people the, each side is accusing the other of potentially hitting the uh, the dam it's going to flood the area right what's it going to flood is it going to flood the west east what is it where is it going to go do you know well I, I would imagine no? so it's going to flood everything that's downstream of it right yeah and uh-huh. and it flows down in this direction south so, uh-huh. so what's at risk of flooding. Is a bunch of stuff over here. Do you not do? The, have you seen how bad is it going to be? Like, is it going to just uh, go, it's just going to cover the city, or how far is it going to go? How bad is it going to be if they do that? From what I've read, uh, I, I've read reports saying something like eighty settlements south of the dam are at risk of flooding. <laughs> okay, so it's not going to like drown all of Kherson, the city. It's I don't think it's going to be quite that bad, but it's going to be pretty bad. And that's one reason that Russia has been evacuating the pro-Russian civilians. Yeah, but it seems like this. It seems like the city. I mean, the, the uh, you know they wanted to create a defensive line, isn't that isn't that the point? And for that, if you still have the city, you could still you know get. So I guess you can't. Can you zoom out a little bit? Okay, so I guess I guess the point is that the Ukraine. I guess the the Dnieper gets. Uh, wider the further north you get right so it it narrows because of the dam is that what's going on so basically ukraine will have trouble attacking anything north of whatever is flooded is that is that the is that would that be the plan and then it would have to concentrate its attack in the south if it wanted to keep going east interesting you know i hadn't thought of it from that perspective you you look at how wide that river is everywhere the the dam is probably explaining at least partially why the river is wider up here but I, i think it's still pretty wide down here i think it's still pretty hard to cross yeah but so i, I mean, think the main I mean, purpose in, in blowing this up i guess there's a couple of purposes one purpose is is the flooding itself uh to, to make life more difficult for the civilians uh and this could kind of and and to just blow up uh the you know the hydroelectric power plant probably one purpose is to just continue another branch of this strategy we see to make life very difficult for Ukraine civilians uh, through mm-hmm. attacking the electrical infrastructure. I think the military purpose is more just about blowing up the crossing across the river so that Ukraine can't tr- chase Russia across when it withdraws its troops. Yeah. Yeah. And well, I mean, two major crossings. Right. That seems uh, Ukraine. I, I've heard they've hit the, they've hit the, um, uh they've hit the the bridge the bridges are do they have one of them or both of them because i thought there was now more. i, I think both bridges finished. ukraine has hit and it's generally using high mars for that now it is within 40 kilometers and so ukraine also has some extended range ammunition called Exc- excalibur uh that can allow its its regular artillery non-high mars guns 
to head out to this region. Excalibur. Yeah. By the way, I, I was, yeah, I, I should have announced at the beginning. Yeah, we're, we're for people who are just listening. We're looking at a map, so there's a there's a video that you can see, and you know we're 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 looking at something here while we're while we're talking about this. Um, but so Ukraine is hitting the the uh, the, the more northern bridge with the dam on it, but not hitting the dam. Is is that right? Are the HIMARS that good that they can do that? Oh, the HIMARS, yeah. I mean, we both read an article in the Wall Street Journal where the, a guy was standing on a mil- molehill and saying, I can hit this molehill if yeah. I want to. What is the what is the what is the full the the bridge? How how long is it? Is it a mile? Is it two miles? What what is what is that distance you think? Uh I, I'm not quite sure. Because it looks uh, like, because it looks like the dam is looks like the dam is at the very end. So I guess you could hit, you know, anywhere there. So maybe you have like miles or I don't know, one mile, whatever it is, whatever that happens to be. It, I think it's more than a mile. So okay, I'm looking at your legend at the bottom. One kilometer. I'm just using my finger here. Uh, looks yeah, like so two or looking, three kilometers. Yeah, this is looking like me a, a bit more than one kilometer. This section right here. Yeah, and so a kilometer is what? How many kilometers in a mile? 1.6 kilometers in a mile. Okay. Uh, okay. So it's, it's, it's like, a, it's like, a, you know, it's like a mile or two, right? Well, this looks a bit longer than a kilometer. So a bit less than a mile. Well, that's not the, that's not the, uh, that's not the whole bridge though. That, the, or is it? That's, I mean, that, I count, do you count that as a bridge too? No, because that's got some land. This that's part, part seems to have some land on it. Yeah. Okay. Gotcha. All right. So there, yeah. So there's a, like a mile. So obviously the, High Mars are good enough to probably, yeah, not, not, not hit the dam. I got it. And so the dam is on the other side. And the theory is that Russia is going to flood the area and, you know, just so perhaps widen the river, uh, make an attack by the Ukrainian. And it does seem to me there's a big, there is a big difference about how much wider the river is in north the, the, uh, rather than south because it's, um, you know, yeah, it's like, it looks like it looks like about three or four times as wide. Before yeah, but the dam. Even, even down in the south, it's still pretty wide. It's, it's pretty wide. Pretty but if, it's three times, if, you, if you could make it three times wider, I mean, I don't know. Yeah, I think you would. Yeah, but I, I don't think that that's a major consideration because it, it's already really hard to cross. Mm-hmm. Okay. So you can cross a mile. You can cross two or three miles, I guess. Either way, you, you need either a bridge or, or you're stuck using pontoon bridges. Now, of course, if the river were significantly wider, that would make the pontoon bridges correspondingly tougher. Let's see what we can see on the satellite if we look down at this area. Okay, so on the satellite, I mean, this looks like the dam right here. And a dam is not like a, a dam is like a really big construction work, right? So if you knock it down, it's not like you can rebuild it as easily as parts of the bridge, right? Oh, yeah. I mean, bridges are tough to rebuild. A dam has got to be exponentially more difficult. Uh-huh. Uh, so, so this basically it looks like what we have is most of this structure is the dam. And the bridge, I think we, we could call this a bridge. It's basically constructed right next to the dam. Is it a, is it a railroad or is that a road? I don't think this is a railroad. Uh, it's possible What's, there's a railroad I'm not seeing that's crossing this, but I, I haven't heard a ra- of a railroad being along this bridge. Yeah. What are those little black? What are those little black boxes across the uh, that are going across the uh, br- uh, the bridge? Are these black boxes? I don't. I don't think they're going across. I'm not sure what they are. It looks like. I mean, okay. I see. Yeah. Okay. 
You see what I'm saying? You see what I'm talking about? There's like uh there's like a median and then there's like a black thing on each side. It's like a grid. Whatever. I don't think it I don't, you know if you can't see it, maybe it's uh it doesn't look like road. It looks like the road, it's like someone just took a black marker and just drew like boxes, you know. Yeah, I don't know what those are. They, they aren't trains. Uh huh. Okay. I don't think there's a railroad going across that. Yeah. And so there's a, but there, yeah, there, there's a uh, E58. So that's a, that looks like it's a highway. And then there's something next to it. I don't know if it's a train track or I don't know what it is, but okay. Or maybe that's the, that's, is that the dam? No. Well, I mean, this right here is the dam. Oh, okay. That's the dam. Got it. And then what's that? That's just probably, probably part of the infrastructure of the dam. Okay. So, like I was saying, the rumblings are coming out that Russia is preparing to withdraw from Kherson, uh, and it might blow the dam behind it, is the word on the street. And the withdrawal is going to be pretty tough. Uh, it's already started moving some of its command across the river. And there was this funny thing, actually. You sent me an article showing how the American media is a bit confused. You sent me a pair of articles that was kind of funny. Uh, mm -hmm. Maybe this will be an important thing for readers and, and listener, listeners to know. There is a lot of confusion that comes up in the American media when the Ukrainians and the European media use terms like the left bank and the right bank uh, of the river. Because yeah. we look at the map and, and we think that left bank means what's left of the river. We think yeah. that left bank means West Bank. Uh -huh. Here's something to know huh, for the rest of your life. To most of the world, I think left and right banks of a river are determined by the direction that the river's water flows in. Mm -hmm. So the Dnieper's river's water flows south. So the right bank of the river is actually here, right of the way the water flows. Right. So the New York Times said it said something like they're going to withdraw from the right bank of the river, and they're like, and it made it sound like they were going to leave the east. But they're, and I said that makes no sense. They're obviously going to withdraw from the west. Yeah, yeah. And you're right. That's exactly, right exactly. So what happened was there, there was some Ukrainian official, I think, that the New York Times was quoting, and he gave some analysis saying literally that Russia is going to withdraw to the left bank of the river. Now, the left bank of the river, that, what he meant was that, that Russia is going to withdraw from Kherson to, across the river to the river's left bank. But the yeah. New York Times uh, journalist misunderstood what it means to withdraw to the left bank of the river. And so the, the New York Times published that Russia with, was going to withdraw troops from the Kherson region to the Kherson region. Yeah. Uh, on the east. Yeah. And so it, it translated some analysis about how Russia was going to withdraw a bunch of yeah. troops to reinforce Kherson. That's that's what the yeah. New York Times. So this is useful information. Totally so, the, so the Dnieper flows from north to south, and so if you're just imagining yourself traveling, the right west is going to be right, east not the map, not looking down on a map. Okay. Uh, yeah, and I think I think the general well, I think the rule is that when you're north of the equator, rivers flow to the south. When you're south of the equator. Rivers flow to the north. Mm. I did not. I did not know that because no, that's like a fact the, uh, I've dredged up from my childhood. But I think that's right. Uh -huh. so, I could be wrong. The, why, why? Why do they wait? Why do? Why do they do? Why do they flow? Uh, uh, why do they? What? Why? What's the reason? Do you remember? You're, you're going to have to ask like a, a geologist or, or somebody. <laughs> it's good information to know. 
Mississippi. I thought it was just, I thought it was just, it's, well, it's elevation, right? I mean, it's like, right. If it's higher land, well, the, it flows. I thought it just flows towards the, uh, uh, what is this? Uh, as of sea. So it's like, I thought it was just because it's, uh, that's the lowest level because it's sea level. It's I, I don't know. I'm, I'm not even sure that fact I dredged up is. Okay. Like, yeah. I ignore, ignore our, ignore our speculation on which way's river flows, but it's got a direction's got a trump north or south of the equator, right? If you're a highland, you're going to go down, obviously. Uh, I don't know. Let, let's not reason through <laughs> it from first principles. <laughs> okay. Okay. All right. And this, so these are, these aren't just like rumblings. These, these about this Russian withdrawal. It's not like just somebody's telling the New York Times. It's like the, the leaders in Kherson are saying, we're getting all the civilians out of there. They're telling civilians to leave. So this is, you know, so people know this is, you know, solid information about something that's certainly happening. Yeah. There, I mean, there are all different kinds of, of sources of information indicating that Russia is preparing to withdraw and it's beginning to withdraw some, some, uh, some stuff like you know it's it's evacuating some civilians and it's withdrawing some some of its commanding officers and what's interesting is that a withdrawal like this is a pretty complex operation mm -hmm. uh and it's got to execute it pretty well to avoid its withdrawal from turning into a route like the route that we saw in the Kharkiv counteroffensive and so some reports are coming in saying that Russia has sent a few thousand of its mobilized men over to this region. And basically, its plan is to use those as kind of the sacrificial lamb to hold off the Ukrainians while what Russia withdraws its more experienced troops. Remember, this is the region where Russia has basically sent most of its best troops. And Russia does not want its best troops, 10, 15,000 of them, getting stuck here and maybe even captured. So that's what the that's what the battle is kind of about when conducting this withdrawal. Russia does not want those best troops to get stuck on this side of the river, and so potentially it's going to use three thousand uh, troops of low value to sacrifice themselves as a shield to allow the better troops to get out. Mm. Uh, but the danger there, there's a trade-off, because it turns out that what you need when you're conducting a withdrawal, you kind of need really good troops to be able to, to be the ones on the line of contact, because imagine the situation for these guys. It's just a few thousand of them, several thousand of them facing everything the Ukrainians have and, and the artillery's concentrating on them. Uh, the brigades of tanks are rushing at them and, and they're getting bombed by planes and helicopters and, and they're getting the, they want to run, they want to re retreat, but they're getting the order to stay and basically to sacrifice themselves, uh, at least some of them. And, and so it, you need pretty experienced troops to be able to do that. Uh, I, think, I think that it's likely that what, what we're going to see here is a return of what are called, uh, I think, blocking detachments. This was something that Russia did, the Soviets did during World War II. They would have mm. military police and similar units, in this case, the Chechens probably, behind their regular troops, basically saying, we're going to execute you if you retreat. It's pretty likely yeah. that that's what Russia is going to do. I've seen, report, I've seen reports of that happening already, but there's no confirmation of that, right? Have you seen those reports? Where, where there's a lot of smoke, there's generally fire. Uh, there have been a lot of reports that that's basically the role that the Chechens are playing, especially in this region. They don't actually do as much of the fighting. 
they, they just they just threaten to execute anyone who retreats. Mm-hmm. And that's yeah. probably well, I don't know if there's smoke, there's fire. I mean, there's always hmm? yeah, there's always there's always stuff people say during war. I don't know if there's always. I mean, th- this is something Russia definitely did during World War II. Sure, I mean, sure. <laughs> that was a long, that was a while ago. Um, but they um. So in, Mar- in uh, the siege of Mariupol, we learned that you know tracking urban territories can be uh, very tough. Um, why you know could could Russia why couldn't could Russia if it had the will to do so do the same in Kherson just hold out and make them fight urban warfare right? There's in theory they could do that. Whether in practice they have anyone as hardcore as Azov is is the question, right? Yeah, and this is an open question. If Russia wanted to, it could make life life more difficult for the Ukrainians by leaving a significant detachment of men to c- conduct urban warfare in Kherson itself in the city. Yeah, yeah, and they would have. I mean, they would have to be. You wouldn't trust soldiers to do it. Like they'd have to be volunteers. Like Azov was. It's like you know that they, they they were not always put together by the state. They just, you know, they were supported, but they wanted to fight, right? I don't think Putin would just drop off soldiers there and say, okay, just hold on his life. They, I think they would just they would just surrender if you just took typical troops and told them to do that. You would need somebody pretty hardcore to volunteer for this job and yeah. not surrender. Okay. So there no. could I mean there could be there could be any what about the didn't you uh what's that city across from Kherson, uh, Nikolaev? Oh yeah, over here. Yep. I, I, did you hear that they were at, at uh, the Ukrainians were also um evacuating that city too? Why would they? I haven't heard anything about that. I don't see why they would. It's not at risk. Uh anymore. I heard uh, yeah, I saw it on Twitter chatter. Could you Google it real quick? Let's let's see if we can actually find something here because I I, I saw it on Twitter, maybe it's not right. I mean, there's no real reason for Ukraine to evacuate any from anything from here. They're not at much risk right now. There's just the usual bombing. Uh, well, let me let me let me Google it then. Uh, Nikolai evacuation. Okay, might have just been a Twitter rumor. Uh, I mean, you, you can see. I mean, Russia hasn't been threatening this city on the ground for a long time. Yeah. Yeah, well, I don't know. Maybe they were gonna, I don't know, do something terrible to the. Uh, yeah, it doesn't look like it. Uh, it doesn't look like there's anything about this on Google. Okay, so I um, so it's just it was just Twitter. It was just Twitter. You know, we we should mention one of the reasons why uh, the situation in Kherson is coming to a head right now. We haven't talked yet about the bombing of the Kerch Bridge, and that happened, I think, right after the last podcast we did a couple of weeks ago. Uh-huh. And I think that that may be one of the reasons why uh, the situation in Kurson is, is becoming more active now and why the Russians are contemplating and beginning a withdrawal. Uh, the bombing of the Kerch Bridge over here right. this happened a few days after our last podcast on Ukraine, so it didn't come up. Uh, it turns out that this bridge is extremely significant. Uh, one thing you have to understand about Russia's army is that it is an army constructed to supply itself using railroads. And that is part of the big vulnerability that we've seen for Russia from the beginning of this war. And when you get back to it, Russia's army, ever since its days as the Soviet Union, 
its army has actually been constructed more defensively than offensively. And, you know, look how big Russia is on the map. Now, as a matter of fact, it's not actually quite as big as it seems, because this is the Magellan, uh, no, the Mercator projection. Oh, there we go with the, uh, yeah, geography geography again. This is the Mercator projection, and and so Russia is one of the countries that that it exaggerates the most. It's still very big, though. And so Mm -hmm. for defensive purposes, Russia for a long time has heavily relied on railroads to transfer men and material from one end of its massive country to the other. Uh, And that works well enough on the defensive. But when you go on the offensive, invading a country like Ukraine, you know, it becomes pretty vulnerable relying so heavily on the railroads it captures. Uh, And so we have seen for a while Ukraine making a lot of trouble for Russia through attacking its railroad supply lines. Now here, Russia is especially vulnerable. Uh, I don't think that this map shows the railroad lines, but take my word for it. There actually are no reliable railroad supply lines from Russia to the Kherson area. There is one major line of railroads, but the problem is that the rail line goes right through this region roughly, and, and this is well within range of every kind of artillery that Ukraine has on this front. And so Russia simply cannot use the railroad reliably to send supplies from this area over to Kherson. Is that why Russia has, I mean, it looks like it go through, goes through uh, the city of Donetsk, and does it go through Luhansk too? Uh, does what go through? The railroad? Uh, yeah, from Russia. I'd, I'd imagine. Yeah, because is that why this is why Russia has been so has been able to really take these areas and since 2014. I mean, it's just that the fact that they're connected by railroads, while a lot of the everything else west of it is is uh, apparently not. I don't know. I'd have to look into that more. Mm-hmm. But for our purposes, it's important yeah. to know that the only reliable railroad supply line that Russia has to Kurzon goes through the Kerch Bridge. Mm-hmm. And so Ukraine did that bombing a couple of weeks ago. Now, there were two important parts of the bridge. What it bombed was the regular bridge for civilian traffic. Uh, and it's looking most likely that it was a truck bomb. But it timed this bombing exquisitely to coincide with this uh, fuel, fuel train that was running across the railroad part of the bridge right next to it. And so the mm-hmm. bombing of the civilian bridge basically caught all the fuel on the rail uh, on the train that was going by and so that that burned and it weakened the steel on the the rail bridge which is really what's much more important for military transport uh-huh. and so i think that there are two rail lines here and i think one of them was was knocked out of commission and it's not completely clear how much damage there is to the rail lines but it's seems that there was at least some significant short-term damage. And so I read that that constricted Russian use of that by maybe up to 50% for at least a few weeks. And so that Did, creates uh, the window of vulnerability that Ukraine is probably in the process of exploiting right now. Yeah, so I know uh, Putin uh, uh, unveiled the bridge that they created um, a few years ago uh, across the Kerch Strait. Is, the did they did the, the Russians build recently just build the um, 
both parts of the bridge, the um, the road and the uh, railroad, or did they just build? Uh, was the railroad always there, or was the railroad built at the same time the road was? I know they did the construction. Of the I, I don't know. I imagine they were both built around roughly the same time. I could be wrong. Yeah. Okay. So before before this, there was no. Uh, yeah, there was no connection between. Uh, there was no land connection between uh, Crimea before when it was part of you when it was controlled by Ukraine. Uh, between that and, and Russia, it was just sort of a you'd have to you'd have to you'd have to sail, ride or fly. Yeah. Okay. And so Russia is doing what it can to repair the bridge. As I've said, there are obviously disagreements between Russian analysts and Western ones on how significant the damage to the bridge is and how easily it can be repaired. You know, uh, one thing is that the bridge could be pretty damaged. It could be pretty, the steel could be pretty weakened by the fire and Russia could just accept that risk and keep running trains over it until potentially the risk materializes it and it breaks. Yeah. But in at least the short term, this did significantly constrict Russian railroad supply to Kherson, which is why we are seeing this vulnerability right now and why Russia is, uh, seems to be preparing to withdraw from Kherson. Mm. It amplified the existing supply problems here. Remember, that's been Ukraine's strategy here yeah. from the beginning. Uh, constrict supply along these two bridges across the Dnieper River. And even before the bombing of the Kerch Bridge, Ukraine was claiming that basically Russia was only able to transport about a third to a quarter of the supplies that it needed across the river. And so that mm. situation was exacerbated by the bombing of the Kerch Strait Bridge. Mm. Okay. So we could, we, I mean, so it's a matter of if, not, uh, it's a matter of when, not if, that Kherson. Like, uh, most yes, likely. Gonna... It's beginning to look inevitable that Ukraine is going to take this Kherson region. Uh, and it's a question of, of whether it'll be weeks or months. Mm. But it's looking more like weeks than months. Yeah, could be days. I mean, the the Kharkiv uh, oblast that was that was quick. I mean, we woke up one day and yeah, the whole the whole region was pretty much overrun. So it's gonna it's gonna happen. Yeah, probably. You think it'll you think it'll take months? I mean, the I, I don't think it'll take months. Yeah, with withdrawal. Yeah, I mean, the withdrawal. I mean, the explicitly withdrawal withdrawing like this. I think is uh, yeah. So okay, so that's um. So I guess maybe maybe this starts. Yeah. So there's a new. Okay. Is there anything anything interesting going on in uh, the middle? There's, we did Kherson and Kharkiv. Well, not much. There has been a lot of news over the last couple months that Ukraine has been sending some forces to the Zaporizhia region. Now, the front line has been pretty stable here for the last few months, at least. There's not been much back and forth here. There, there are always rumblings where Ukraine, a Ukrainian official goes in the news saying, hey, maybe we'll do a counteroffensive in Zaporizhia. Maybe we'll retake Mariupol. Uh, I don't, I think that those are mostly a bluff just to force Russia to send troops to defend this region. That's yeah. one of the games that both sides have been playing, uh, just kind of threatening counteroffensives or threatening offensives in areas where they won't actually happen just to, to divert the other side's resources. And by the way, I think that is what is happening over near the border 
with uh with Belarus. You know, there's a yeah. lot of talk lately about Belarus uh starting to mobilize some of its army. Russia sending a lot of its mobilized men here and it's talking about maybe conducting some kind of new offensive against Kyiv. I don't think that's actually going to happen. I think that that's just the smart way you pose a threat to Ukraine that it has to honor diverting men to defend over here that it could otherwise use in its actual counteroffensives over yeah. here in the in the east or the south. It doesn't seem like it's working. I mean, every story I've read seems to be that nobody believes this. Everyone thinks this is a bluff and no one thinks it'll work. So if that's the case, then... Uh, nobody thinks it's better. particularly likely. At the same time, you kind of have to honor the threat to a certain degree. Uh-huh. And so if, if, if you're Russia, if you have to train these mobilized men anyway for a month or two, you might as well train them over here where they pose an active threat of invasion <laughs> to Ukraine. Instead of training them somewhere over here or in Belgorod, you know, where, where Ukraine doesn't have to worry about them. Mm. And so actually, I, I think that Russia is doing a fair amount of its training over here where it can kind of get double value out of those men. They constitute an active threat, even while they're merely being trained. And I mm. think that Ukraine has just decided to do some of it, the training of its own troops along here. Uh-huh. So it's not wasting actual trained soldiers. Mm. Okay, so the, um, yeah, and so there's something about uh, Bakhmut uh, yep. uh, in the east. I mean, does, this, does this matter? Is, is, why do they want Bakhmut so much? Is it some kind of a hub? I'm, I'm very glad you asked about that, because this is actually something uh, that I wished we had talked about last time. So mm-hmm. Bakhmut, uh, we see it down here. Yeah. Right here. Uh-huh. So this is the area where Russia has continually been conducting offensive actions, even as it has retreated or stayed dug in everywhere else. This is the one area where Russia has kept attacking and kept pressing Ukraine hard. Uh, But it's been slow going for Russia. I mean, you can see it has made reports of advancing. There have been reports, oh, it's advanced a little bit in Bakhmut, you know, for the last few months at least. But in spite of all those advances, somehow the front line stays basically the same. Mm. And that's because Russia, you know, it spent months advancing tens or hundreds of meters every day. And then I think just as, as of very recently, as of a couple of days ago, in, a, in the course of a day or two, Ukraine retook most of the halting advances that Russia had made here. And yeah. the thing is, this is where the bloodiest, some of the bloodiest fighting is happening. Uh, and Russia is using Wagner here. This is where Wagner is. And Wagner right now is basically Russia's best troops, or at least some of its best troops, because these are veterans. These are guys who have fought in Syria and elsewhere. So they know what they're doing, and they're better equipped than the average Russian soldier. But here's the thing. Bakhmut has lost its strategic significance. It doesn't actually make sense that Russia keeps trying so hard to take this. What was the, what was the original significance and why is the it original now? significance is something that you and I and others had been talking about since the beginning of the war. It was this attempt to envelop, to do what's called a double yeah. envelopment of Ukraine's soldiers. Uh, and this is something people were talking about since the beginning yeah. of the war. 
Ukraine had a lot of its most experienced soldiers in the Donbass fighting here. And the plan, you can think back to months ago and remember this. Plan, yeah, yeah, yeah. But the plan yeah. was that Russia was going to in, do a double envelopment of, the, of them advancing up north through Bakhmut, through that region, and advancing south through Izum. Yeah. And then the Izum troops were going to meet up with the Bakhmut troops around here. And then it was going to create this giant pocket of Ukrainian soldiers who were then going to have to surrender. That was the big plan, uh, a double yeah. envelopment. This is a tactic that Hannibal kind of uh, made famous in, in Kanai, where he, he, he basically, he had, Hannibal had a small army and he annihilated a very large Roman army with a double envelopment. Uh -huh. Time-honored military tactic. But the strange thing is that that strategy disappeared the moment the Kharkiv counteroffensive happened. I mean, you lost half of the potential for the envelopment, but yeah. Russia continued stubbornly with the other half of the attempted envelopment, but it no longer has a strategic purpose. Mm. Yeah, seems seems pretty seems pretty stupid. Um, yeah, that seems. I mean, that seems dumb. Uh, yeah, I remember walking, looking at the map, and it always looked like Ukraine was in trouble. I mean, because I really people were saying, "Oh, it's a matter of time," and Russia was making advances on both sides. And it really, if you looked on the map, it was like you know they looked like they were really crunched. Um, so you know, a lot of people thought that this might be a way for you know, so you, uh, Russia to just you know get a lot, uh, capture or kill a lot of Ukraine's best soldiers and get some land. Um, but now it seems like, yeah, all this stuff east of the, between the Dnieper River and the, uh, the Russian controlled territory, it seems like it's just, you know, it's just territory for territory's sake. It doesn't yeah. seem like much of it has any <laughs> meaning for anything else. At this well, Kherson has meaning, right? Kherson has meaning because you're, you're on the, uh, you're on the Black Sea. Uh, I said the yeah. Sea of Azov, but the Sea of Azov is more, the, uh, is beyond, uh, Crimea. Um, and then, um, and then uh, the other stuff, Kharkiv has imports because it's by a major city and it's by the Russian border. Um, and so all that stuff matters, seems to matter for strategically. And this stuff just seems like, who cares? Like it's going to, well, I mean, it matters if Ukraine moves east and gets Donetsk and Luhansk. So maybe they, maybe they just need to hold on to their own territory and maybe best, you know, best defense is a good offense. And maybe that's why you just want to create some room for yourself. Maybe, maybe that's the, the logic here. You're just going to try to keep advancing. Well, down here in Bakhmut, I think Russia has been fighting for it so hard simply because it has been fighting for it for a long time. And so I think mm -hmm. the motivation for continuing to, tr to fight for Bakhmut is entirely political, not tactical or strategic. It has very little value now given the fact that the potential for the pincer movement is entirely gone. They lost yeah, but, one um, major half of the pincer, and they're still trying stubbornly to continue the second half of the pincer. Well, how far are Donetsk and Luhansk from the front line, the cities? Well, Donetsk has always been pretty close to the front line. Uh, Donetsk is, is down here. I mean, there are some minor actions that, that are conducted in this area, but nothing significant, significant uh, ever Get to get to Luhansk. Can you show over here? City of Luhansk over here. Uh, okay, so it's uh, it's it's pretty looks pretty far. From, yeah, and, and from so Luhansk. the risk to Russia, like we were saying last time, I think to ri the risk to Russia is that it loses if the Svatova Kremina line collapses within the next few weeks to a month. Then then Ukraine is probably going to retake this territory up to. 
the next line of defense at the Adar River. That's what this river is running north to south through Starbeels. Uh, is that a big deal? Is the Adar River a big deal? Seems pretty big. Uh, you know, any river is significant. What is the what is even to the east? What I mean, what is that? Just like it doesn't even look like there's any villages or nothing there. It just looks I mean, like there there are always scattered settlements. Yeah, they yeah okay okay. So I still believe that Ukraine is likely to be able to take this this line over the next month or so and, and advance during winter. Basically, the winter fight over the next couple months is going to be in this region. I think Ukraine. Mm-hmm has the advantage here. And I actually saw some confirming evidence of that uh, when I read an interview with, I think, the commander of Wagner. Wagner is attempting to construct this defensive line that people have started labeling the Wagner line. And the Wagner line seems constructed, I forget exactly where it is, but it's not being constructed right along here, I think. Uh, I think the evidence I saw suggests that Wagner doesn't have great faith in Russia's ability to hold this territory. Mm. And so the line is where? Is it just south of there? You know, I'd have to look up and find out more about exactly where Wagner What is the line? What is the line? Just a lot of troops? Is they building something there? Uh, they're building fortifications. Maybe we could find a picture of it, Wagner line. Uh, they're using a lot of something that's called dragon's teeth. Oh, that sounds cool. Okay, show what the let's see what let's, yeah we got to see what that looks like. Uh, let's see the Kremlin rifts appearing as Putin's chef. Uh, Putin's chef is a nickname for the leader yeah. of Wagner. Let's see. Is there be... anger with the Wagner Wagner line? I don't know. It, it's hard to find a picture. But I, I don't think it's being constructed along the front uh, right here in Svatova. And uh, give us, give us, let's see Dragon's Teeth. Can you get that to see? Yeah. It's going to be part of it. Wagner, Dragon's Teeth. Uh, th- this is an anti. Let's see if we can find. Ah, so yeah, here, here is what Wagner is making. So, like your tat, you would try to use tanks and then you would, uh, and then I guess they, they're just like, they're just like big solid cones. Well, these are big. you know more like pyramids. Here's the yeah. strange thing about Wagner's version of it though. Normally these things called dragon's teeth, normally these are only supposed to be the visible tip of it. It's supposed to be dug in at least a meter, one and a half meters deep. Uh, but these, all all there is is what you see here. Russia's not digging these in. There's nothing below what you see. Russia's just plopping these down. And so they aren't kind of as intimidating there because here, if Ukraine just has basically bulldozers, it can just scoop these up and they're gone. Uh-huh. Okay, so what are, what are they doing? make life much more difficult for armored vehicles. Uh-huh. But it looks like it doesn't, sound, it doesn't sound like it's that. It doesn't sound like it's that hard. Well, you need a bulldozer, I guess. It, it, you know. Yeah, so, so these, these, these dragon's teeth, these are kind of like small teeth, mini teeth. They're not as uh-huh. serious as the version that we saw during World War II. Mm. Can they? Ha- I mean, can they help? You said all they need is bulldozers. I mean, can't they? I don't know. Like, can't they? How how tall are these things? I mean, so these here, here you get a a better picture of these. You see, they're about the height of one of the wheels on this truck. Uh huh. Okay. And o- over here we have some some more some pictures of more serious ones. Let's. 
let's look back in general. I mean, so, okay, here, you can see that the, these look much more serious. Mm. Yeah. These are much deeper. Yeah, that looks difficult to get through. Yeah, the other thing doesn't. But it's, uh, yeah, okay. And uh, Wagner has also started constructing some of these near Belgorod. And that's kind of interesting to me because Belgorod is Russian territory and Ukraine has never sent any ground attacks into there and they're not likely to. Yeah. I mean, for now, who knows? Who knows what the future will, who knows what the future will hold? I think it's uh, pretty unlikely that Ukraine is ever going to send troops in, in to do an invasion of Russia. Mm, because if it, mm. if it did that, then Russia would overcome some of its reluctance to be mobilized. Yeah. Okay. So the, um, so we've been uh, talking a lot about um, not, not in this podcast, but outside the podcast about the, um, the attack on Ukrainian infrastructure. So how's that, how is that going? It seems like, it seems like it's having some kind of effect, whether it has effect on a war, it does seem like Ukraine is low on energy, right? So how do, how do you think about that? Yeah. So we have been talking a lot about this and about how effective it's likely to be. So I think the, the most up-to-date up to word on it is that something like 30% of Ukraine's power plants had been attacked. Uh, and some of that... I thought, I thought it was like 30% of their power capacity was gone. That, that might be right. That might be uh, right. Yeah. yeah, that's a better and, measure. And they are doing some repairs, and some repairs will take much longer than others. This is... This does, does certainly make life a lot more difficult for Ukrainian civilians. And I guess there are kind of two key questions that you have to separate. One question is whether Russia can keep this up and keep making life difficult for Ukrainian civilians as they enter winter. Mm. The second question is, even if Russia can do that, how much military value does that have? Right. So let's take the first question, whether Russia can keep this up and make life very difficult for Ukrainian civilians. Here, for a while, I thought the answer was no. And I thought the answer was no simply because these attacks use up Russia's supply of precision-guided missiles. It's cruise missiles mostly, also some ballistic missiles. And Russia is running very low on those. But the big change recently in this element of the equation is first, the Iranian suicide drones. Second, the fact that Iran is now starting to send cruise missiles and ballistic missiles to Russia. So this has mm -hmm. changed. And as the evidence changes here, my mind mm -hmm. changes. And mm -hmm. I think, hey, Russia probably can keep this up now because it's got this big supply of precision munitions, uh, missiles coming in from Iran that are a game changer. Now, I want to be careful. I don't know whether they're a game changer on the military side of the equation, but on the question of Russia's ability to attack Ukraine's civilian power grid, yeah, these Iranian drones and ballistic and cruise missiles do give Russia a far greater capacity to continue these attacks. Yeah. And, and the Iranian, I mean, the Iranian drones, they're cheap, they're plentiful, they're not going to run out. Um, yeah, not be yeah them, the drones. This is this is kind of an interesting innovation in the technology that's available in warfare. The Iranian drones are a serious problem 
And they're a problem because the drones themselves are far cheaper than the missiles that Ukraine's air defense has been using to shoot them down. So Russia can buy a lot of these things. I, I think the, the word is that as of right now, Russia bought more than 2,000 of them. Uh, and it can probably buy more of those. Mm. And that's a yeah. lot. And when you talk about these anti-air defense batteries that Ukraine has, the amount of counter missiles on these things is pretty small. I, I think so. Germany just sent a really modern one to Ukraine that arrived a couple weeks ago called Iris T. Very new, very effective, very accurate. But the number of missiles that it has, I, I think it was somewhere around 24, maybe it was 48 somewhere between those. And so you don't want to use those to shoot down a drone that costs 20K. The missiles cost at least 10 times more than the drones that, that they would potentially shoot down. And mm -hmm. these drones, they come in low and slow, too low for radar to effectively spot them. And uh, unlike cruise missiles, they can, they can kind of surround a target and swarm it from all different directions. The cruise missiles just come from the direction they're, they're shot in, basically. Mm -hmm. the, the, the drones can slowly position themselves, uh, surround 360 degrees around their target, and then come in uh, all these cheap little suicide drones overwhelming the defense. And if the defense does waste an expensive missile shooting down the drone, then the Russians are perfectly happy. The um, What about the... Uh, uh... Yeah, so there was in the beginning of the war we heard about uh, Turkish drones that Ukrainians had. Uh, what happened? What happened to those? Like, why? Why does the Iranian? Why are the Iranian drones? They seem to be so special. Well, the the Turkish drones, the Bayraktars, um, Ukraine is still using them, and they're still being effective, uh, and they're taking out Russian targets. The yeah, the, the Ukrainian Bayraktars are going on the offensive, and they're still taking out Russian tanks taking out Russian air defenses. Uh, I think I read in the news, actually, that one reason we have heard a little bit less about the Bayraktars lately is that some of Ukraine's officials asked the media to talk about them less. I think they were unhappy with the degree of media coverage of the, over them. Uh, mm -hmm. That's kind of interesting. It, it may imply that as the media covered them more, that that started, I, I think the media was maybe starting to give a bit too much public information about how Ukraine was using those drones. And so that's why we hear less about them. They're still being used, but Ukraine was not happy about how much everybody was talking about them. Mm. And so the, the drones, I mean, they both have good drones, but I guess the point is... But they're going on the offensive. They're going on the yeah. offensive. So Ukraine's Bayraktars are taking out Russian tanks and, anti, uh, and air defense systems. That's the offensive. These, these drones are not specialized to shoot down other drones. No, yeah, I got it. But I'm saying, well, I mean, the Iranian drones, is a, I guess the point is they're hitting stationary targets. Like if, if Ukraine wanted to use drones to knock out the power of, uh, say, uh, the Russian-controlled territories, could they do that? Or is it all just too connected? Well, yeah, they, they could probably do that. And they have done that to a degree. Uh, there were reports a while ago about a big Ukrainian attack. I mean... So that there were Ukrainian attacks on bases in Crimea, and probably drones played a large role in those because they don't have many missiles that can reach there. And so, somewhere over in Russia itself, there was a Russian base that was attacked, and there were probably drones playing a role there too. Uh -huh. Why can't they, but why can't they swarm all of Crimea? You say and destroy the power in Crimea the way that 
uh, the way that the Russians uh, trying to do with uh, uh, Kiev and these other cities. Maybe they could. I, I don't know. Maybe we'll see more of that coming up. Uh, it, it could be that part of the reason Ukraine is not attacking it heavily is because it still contemplates taking it back eventually. Uh-huh. So you think, okay, so, uh, you know, regardless of all that, so you think that uh, Russia could probably keep this up thanks to the drones? And- I think that they can keep this up. And not only can they keep this up, unfortunately, there's a decent chance they can step it up after these Iranian uh, ballistic missiles and cruise missiles really start to arrive. I, I don't think that that wave of supply has really strongly hit yet. And yeah, so, yeah. unfortunately, it's likely that that'll hit within the coming weeks. And so, thanks to the Iranian supplies, Russia could make it a very difficult winter for Ukrainian civilians. Yeah. And let me, let me say some, some more about the drones. Ukraine and its NATO suppliers have yet to come up with a very effective, cost-effective response to the Iranian suicide drones. Remember, the problem is that the, the missile air defenses are just far too costly to deal with the sheer mass of these cheap suicide drones. What you really need to see is kind of, well, guns, guns and bullets. Bullets are what are even cheaper than drones. And so one response that you could see that would be effective is a return to the old-fashioned World War II era of air defense, where you got old-fashioned anti-aircraft guns, uh, you know, like flat guns shooting this stuff down. Mm. Now, now here we get to a connection between the civilian and military sides of the equation. Because remember, one question is how effectively Russia can hurt Ukraine civilians. The second question is what effect that has, if any, on the military side of things. And so one effect is the air defenses. Uh, Whatever air defenses Ukraine devotes to defending against these attacks on the infrastructure are air defenses that it can't rush to the front to aid in the offensives and scare off the Russian aviation. Mm -hmm. And in particular, one of the effective uh, platforms that Ukraine has is the 30 or so Gepard German self-propelled anti-aircraft guns. These are basically German tanks that have anti-aircraft guns on them. Germany Mm -hmm. gave about 30. They arrived a few months ago. Uh, And these were actually used to particularly great effect in the Kharkiv counteroffensive, the German self-propelled Gepard anti-aircraft guns. But these turn out to be one of the most effective responses to shoot down the uh, the Iranian suicide drones. And so Ukraine has a choice. Does it use those that limited number of German self-propelled guns? Does it use them to shoot down the drones aiming at civilians, or does it use them in the counteroffensives? Mm. Okay, so okay, so yeah, that that helps the military situation. I is it? I mean, can it? Like you know, Ukraine at some level needs a economic base, right? I think you know you might freeze a lot of old people in the winter. Uh, that doesn't matter economically. That might, uh, yeah, that probably doesn't matter. Yeah, it might. I don't know. Uh, but, you know, that they're probably going to kill some people. But 
Um, I think what it could do, potentially more uh, important for the military situation, is lead to uh, more refugees. I don't know what's happened with the refugee situation. I remember it was just massive numbers were leaving at the beginning of the war. I think that's slowed down a lot, but that's got to be, I haven't checked recently, but that's got to be picking up. And, you know, I mean, I don't know. I, I don't know. Maybe they just don't let the men leave, but, you know, it seems like a lot of people are going to be desperate to get out as, you know, as fast as they can. And this is manpower and this is economic power, right? That this matters, doesn't it? Potentially. So we've had an ongoing conversation about whether, whether this bombing of civilians will have a great military effect. And so we've already seen that it can divert important military air defense resources away from the front. And now you're mentioning this other idea that it, that, that it could just make, it could weaken Ukraine's economy in various ways. And one of the ways is by causing more people to leave and become refugees. A different way is just, you know, directly taking away the power. And I, do, I don't want to say that that's worthless militarily. I do think that it can have these effects. At the same time, the position I've been taking is that historically, we just cannot find very much precedent for one nation bombing another into submission through attacks on its civilian populace and infrastructure when the nation still has plenty of troops and the ability to supply them. I mean, we, we just can't find precedent for that. We can find plenty of precedent for the opposite. We can find plenty of precedent when the United States itself has has done a lot of bombing of civilian infrastructure and populace, uh, and it's only cost us in the long run in the military situation. Look at what happened. Well, I mean, it did, it did beat it did beat the military. I mean, it did be the Gulf first Gulf War, the second Gulf War too. We did beat the mili- we did beat the military of Iraq, um, and so this is a we steamrolled war. their military very quickly. I mean, they you were. look at the major tank battles. In, in the first Gulf War, and I, I forget what it's called, but you look at the numbers, like, oh, the biggest tank battle, and we killed, like, hundreds of their tanks. I'm not sure they, they killed a single one of our tanks. Uh, so you're saying... Hey, them very quickly. We did hit, well, we did hit the civilian infrastructure, but you're saying it, it didn't matter. Uh, I mean, it's it not- didn't matter because, because their military had no capability to resist us. It, it, it was like taking candy away from a baby. Mm, well, okay, so you have... Um, so you have Japan with nuclear weapons, right? At the end of World War II, you don't have a lot of examples of countries just taking out the you know, recently. I mean, because the this is, it's not been a lot of big state wars in the uh, second so, half of the twentieth century since the second so half of the twentieth century. So this is actually this is actually the closest precedent you could attempt to find for a notable case where bombing civilians caused a country to give up and surrender. Uh, I don't think that this is a very close analogy, but. The closest analogy you could try to find, maybe, is us nuking Japan, nuking Nagasaki yeah. and Hiroshima. But how? But how often have the U.S. or how often has a country tried to destroy the and had the capabilities to like cut off the power in another country uh, during a war? That that hasn't happened a lot uh, since 1945. So there's not a lot of examples here, especially in cold region in the winter. I mean, there's there's nothing. There's no equivalent to this. Well, I, I think Vietnam well, the U.S. bombed the last days of uh, the Vietnam War when uh, Nixon really started bombing North Vietnam. Um, you know, they they pacified it for a while. Then the U.S. left and the South Vietnamese collapsed. But it, I think it did work. Actually, I think the bombing did work uh, during the end of the Vietnam War. Did it? Because what I'm getting to is that what we typically see 
when you attack a civilian population, whether the civilians themselves or their infrastructure, even if that has an effect, what it does is it strengthens the civilians' will to fight. It strengthens everybody's will to fight. Maybe, or maybe it strengthens their, I don't know, their, their self-preservation. That's also a, that's also a, um, a motivate motivation. But the self-preservation uh, instinct, when somebody seems to be intent on annihilating you, you do not really believe that if you surrender, everything will be fine. No, so, so, so you can leave. So you, so you leave. Well, I mean, first of all, if you do, if Ukraine just surrendered, they would actually, I mean, like if they just stopped fighting, they, the civilians, you know, probably would have their power back. I mean, that, that actually is a good way to get them to stop, kill, stop maybe, killing you. Maybe in the short term, the lights would come back on. But if you're a Ukrainian civilian and, and you see the Russians uh, killing all these civilians and you see these reports coming out about torture chambers, and and all these mass rapes. So you maybe There's maybe even you a just term flee. called a rape clinic. Right. There maybe are, maybe there, there are maybe terms you, called maybe. rape clinics where apparently Russians on Russian soldiers on their own in these territories have just created, you know, buildings that they bring women Ukrainian women in to to rape them. Uh so you if you're Ukrainian and you're reading all these reports, you do not believe that if you just surrender, your life will be fine under Russian rule. You could, I mean, look, you could just, you could just leave. You could just care about your, well, first of all, I mean, some people are not on the front lines fighting, right? There's people in Kiev and, uh, you know, the rest of the, the rest of the city, the rest of the country is functioning. And those people, you know, some people haven't gone to the front lines. They're live, they, they, there's a certain percent of population that are just doing cost benefit, not for the national sake, but for the individual and the family level. And they, you know, they, if they're the people who haven't left Ukraine yet, um, and they could, you know, they could leave and then other, you know, other people could, I think you're, I think you're right that the, you know, this is sort of a, it's like the, you know, it's like, it's like, a, it's like a cultural thing. It's all, it's a different, I guess it's a different, it's a different question from the decision to leave. Um, the people, the people who do, the people who do stay, I mean, it's, you know, it's, it's like. Look, I mean, people submit to people who are stronger uh, and who are hurting them all the time, right? So we saw this in the Middle East when you have the, you know, ISIS goes on the rampage. Um, it's not like every Christian community or every Alawite community uh, fought to the death. Many of them fled. Uh, many of them, you know, surrendered and tried to live, tried, Christian communities tried to live under uh, Islamic law. Um, and so it happens. I mean, it's, it's, it's not like, you know, you hit people and they always will fight. It's often like... Yeah, it's often that they give up or they flee or or, or they sue for peace. I mean, that, that's also but part of history. I mean, it's not just one way. What you have to consider is the military side of the equation. Do you surrender to the Russians? Do you say, I can't take the pain anymore, if you think that your own army is currently beating the Russians, has the advantage on yeah. the battlefield? Yeah, probably not. Probably not. Um, I think that's, I think that's right. Yeah. I think, uh, yeah. So it, it makes better sense that it would get a lot of people to flee than it would get people to. And maybe it, some the, people would flee, you know, probably a lot of the people who wanted to flee have probably fled by now. One thing that we have to consider is the emotional aspect of the equation, the need for revenge. Uh, and it's not just you, it's your family. It's your friends who are, who are getting hurt, who are still at risk. And so a lot of them will want to fight. The need for revenge is very strong. Yeah, I mean, there's there's human variation. There's a need for revenge. There's a need for self-preservation, and there's you know different. 
you know, you could say the people who really have a need for revenge and really care about Ukrainian independence, a lot of them are being killed off as time goes on too. So you could say a lot of the people who wanted to flee fled, and you could say a lot of people who really want to fight are already dead or already captured. And Maybe. so, yeah, there's there's but a it's very complicated. Here, here's what we can see in the United States' own experience. No matter how many, no matter how many Vietnamese people, including civilians and soldiers, we killed, there were always more because as we bombed them. We created more people who hated us and wanted to fight us. And uh, over in Afghanistan and Iraq, we weren't even directly trying to kill civilians there. Ostensibly, we were trying to avoid creating civilian casualties. Yet, if you look into the details, it turns out that we didn't try very hard to avoid civilian casualties. Uh, you know, you, you go in, somebody fires on your troops, you kill everything in the field in front of you, <laughs> many of yeah. them civilians. And so it turns out that in Afghanistan, no matter how many Taliban fighters we killed, we just incidentally killed so many civilians, too. There were always more Taliban fighters than there had been the, the year before. Their numbers always grew as, as we killed more of them. Yeah. Well, it's complicated. Each one of these situations, they had periods of peace. I mentioned Vietnam. Uh, before, you know, uh, uh, during uh, Nixon, uh, you know, Afghanistan, the first few years were, were pretty peaceful. Iraq, um, after the Sunni awakening, had a you know a little bit of time. So, I mean, it's it's uh, you know it's um, you know it's it's complicated. Uh, and yeah, I, you know, I don't know. Is that uh, what I fall back to is if you're if you're Ukrainian and you think that your military has a fighting chance and even has the advantage, you are very unlikely to have your will broken by these Russian attacks on civilians. Uh, what, yeah. what we're going to end up seeing is a lot of dead civilians. Uh, like I said, I think that these Iranian drones and the, the incoming cruise missiles and ballistic missiles, I think these are a big problem for Ukrainian civilians. But there is a disconnect between how much you can kill civilians and how much that helps you win a war. Yeah, I mean, yeah, so... You know, Japan, Japan is interesting because it was a, you know, it was a culture that nobody thought would uh, ever, ever surrender. And, uh, you know, at some point it just got so bad. I mean, you're, you have this, you have this uh, winter, right? You have this really, you know, you, you could, I, we haven't seen it. We don't know what happens to, you know, millions, you know, millions now, of people. To, to be clear, we've crazy. mentioned Japan as one of the nearest possible precedents you could find for bombing a civilian population into surrender. But if you really look into the details of it, most historians and analysts agree that it's not that our nukes caused Japan to surrender. In fact, the evidence suggests that Japan was, was strongly contemplating surrendering anyway. And we said, oh man, Japan's about to surrender. Well, we've got these nukes that we want to scare the world with. Quick, we better nuke them before they can surrender. Uh, and yeah. I think that it was Russia's entry into the war against Japan. It was Russia starting to open a front against Japan there was one of the major impetuses for Japan to surrender. Yeah. So I, I do not think that it's correct to say that our nukes caused Japan to surrender. That's just the, the common story that has been passed down. Yeah. Well, I mean, I read the rising uh, from relying on the rising sun, which is a great book on the fall of the Japanese empire. And I, I do believe the nukes, I don't think, the Russia thing, I think there's something to that. I don't think that they were uh, going to surrender without um, either nukes or Russia. I don't think they were, you know, they were going to surrender anyway. But you know, let's see the point. There's not a lot of there's not a lot of cases we can think of where this. There's not a lot of comparable situations. You say, well, Japan. I mean, like there haven't been big major uh, wars between two states, and one of them just trying to bomb the other one. You know, it, it, uh, 
you know, to bomb the other one to death. I mean, somebody could look at Iraq and Afghanistan and say, you know, we were, you know, you're like, oh, we weren't trying hard. And people could make the opposite case. Like, oh, because we didn't try to kill enough civilians and we didn't make their lives hard enough. That's why, you know, we didn't win. So it could, you know, you could make the opposite case. There's not a lot of, uh, there's not, you know, tons of examples here. I don't know. Um, but yeah, I mean, the, you know, we, we do, we do, I, I think you're right that, you know, I don't think it. I don't think it matters. I, yeah, I don't, like I don't think if like old people want, really want the war to end because they don't want to freeze in Kiev, like the Russian, the Ukrainian military is going to stop fighting. So I think I think you're right there. Um, but you know, who knows? It's it's, it's unpredictable psychological dynamics. Um, the uh, but I think the I think the other point of it, like really just hurting the Ukrainians, uh, you know, a sort of economic base. Uh, you know, their sort of just ability to, you know, manpower and 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 just, you know, costs and feeding them and, you know, doing transporting them and everything else. Uh, you know, I think I think it could, you know, it, it could have an effect there, right? Some, you, some you, effect. You, now you have to yeah. remember, so there's two corresponding factors. So the one factor I've mentioned is that even as Russia manages to damage Ukraine's economic base, it's also potentially increasing the will to fight of some Ukrainians. But the other factor that we really need to consider is the massive backing, the massive financial backing that Ukraine is getting from the West. Uh, and the the question here is how long is the West willing to keep this up? Because yeah. if we just step up our financial aid as Russia inflicts more damage, then it's either a wash or potentially Ukraine could even be better off if we increase our aid by enough. I don't think, yeah, I, 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 you, I don't think the Ukrainian aid is going to make up for having no electricity, having the infrastructure constantly being bombed and going power out. All I, I just can't believe that that's going to make a big look, look at the Ukraine. Look at the Ukrainian aid versus looking at the Ukraine. I think I read at one point. I think this estimate has changed, but it said fifty percent of GDP drop, thirty percent of GDP drop. Uh, that that was a re, uh, revision, last revision I saw. Um, and I don't know. Do the math. I don't think it's. Well, I don't think one, the aid one is thing I'm cover considering that. here is military aid. We haven't talked yeah. much about attackings. You're right. You're right. You're right. They they might it might not matter. It might not matter. Ukraine will could get and, and you know word. as as Russia steps up, up this bombing. So this is once again a potential link between the civilian attacks and the military impact. Uh, one thing we have already seen is that a lot of the Western nations have agreed to accelerate and step up uh, air defense trans transport to to Ukraine, and that that was an obvious impact that we always knew we were going to see. But the other thing is that as Russia increases and continues these attacks, we're going to see Ukraine and Western analysts increasing the demand to give Ukraine uh, short-range ballistic missiles, attackums fired from HIMARS that can that can that can respond to the Russian missiles. Right now, Russian Russia launches missiles from its territory. Ukraine doesn't have anything with the range to take out those launchers. And it doesn't have anything reliable with the range to just take out the Kerch Bridge. It, it had to do some MacGyver special operation to damage mm. the rail. Bridge. Yeah, yeah. We've we had this conversation before about the um, compelled strategy and the reaction in the West. You know, Russia could think that maybe you know the politics is maybe you know uncertain. You know, there's a. You know, Trump could win election. There was talk of Kevin McCarthy saying the Republicans maybe uh, wouldn't be so supportive of Ukraine. So, you know, you could imagine the politics 
might change. Like the economy is, you know, unpredictable. Things could yeah. things could happen. So maybe maybe there's maybe that's the sort of the hope for the Russians. It is a hope for the Russians. I'm, I'm sure that they they loved McCarthy's comments. It is notable that McConnell came out with a statement the next day disagreeing with McCarthy. Did you see that yeah. one? No, yeah, I, I did. Yeah, McConnell has always been very uh, hawkish on foreign policy. Um, but, you know, the nominee in 2024 will probably be Trump. And, um, yeah, that you know, the Biden might still be the popular president and <laughs> Ukraine might, Ukraine, Ukraine might uh, not be happy to see that. So, yeah, uh, Russia is probably hoping for that. And, I mean, that's, that's a good thing for it to hope for, most likely. Uh, Russia is embarking on this strategy. Russia has always believed that the West is going to grow tired of supplying Ukraine at some point. Uh, That's an open question. I think that we'll know a lot more about that as the winter approaches and the midterm elections happen. That'll be relevant evidence to see whether whether we're gonna start to get tired of supplying Ukraine. Mm -hmm. Okay, yeah, so there's, yeah, there's a a lot there. at some point we should talk about we should talk about the end game not not today but at some point i think that's uh the we covered a lot today is there any um you know anything else we should talk about um anything else sort of you think people should be on the lookout for in the coming days and weeks you know, before you, before we go i guess maybe we could just close a little bit on what all of this analysis so far implies for the nuclear question mm-hmm. because you just sent me the uh, yesterday, the news came out that uh, the Russian defense minister just called up all of his NATO counterparts, and he said, "We are worried that Ukraine is about to nuke us. Mm-hmm. <laughs> We're worried that Ukraine is about or to themselves. Nuke us. They're going to do a false flag in their, own, in their to themselves, basically. Either one, a dirty bomb, a dirty bomb. Yeah. yeah. And as far as we know, Ukraine doesn't even have the material to do a dirty bomb. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, Ukraine." gave up all of that long ago uh, for defensive assurances that Russia wouldn't invade it. Uh, And so that is a reason to worry that the risk of nukes is becoming greater. But I don't honestly, I I guess I want to take a nuanced position here. I I don't want to pretend to know the Russian mind, okay? Uh, there, There is a difference between what is rational and what Russia might end up doing. I mean, I wouldn't have thought it was rational for Russia to do many of the things that it's done so far in the war. And then it did mm-hmm. them, and it didn't work out, largely. I didn't think it was mm-hmm. rational for Russia to attack Kiev, but mm-hmm. that didn't prevent it from attacking Kiev. Mm-hmm. So I don't think that Russia stands to gain it much from using a, a tactical nuke. That does, that's no guarantee that Russia won't. Russia's own analysis may differ from mine. At the same time, I still believe if Russia uses a tactical nuke, perhaps we're seeing this because it might potentially be revenge for this major loss they're looking at in the Kherson region. We have often seen Russia make revenge moves in response mm-hmm. to big battlefield losses. And so maybe if it loses Kherson, maybe it'll, it'll kind of petulantly use a battlefield nuke. I still don't believe that would make a positive difference on the ground. Remember, I think that if Russia does that, I think that we'd be giving Ukraine attackums. And the moment we give Ukraine attackums to be fired from HIMARS, this bridge is gone. It's just gone permanently the moment that mm-hmm. happens. And remember, this bridge is Russia's only railroad supply line into this entire southern region. It cannot use the, the railroads along here 
because they're just within range of everything Ukraine has. They're not usable. And so that's a major battlefield lost right there. And, and so that's one reason why I don't think Russia should do it. The other consideration, I think Russia still has things to hope for. I think it still has things yeah. to hope for in the conventional war. And it probably ought to wait for regular hope to be exhausted before it resorts to, to nukes. I mean, mm-hmm. we saw it, it, it's mobilized men, at least temporarily, stabilizing, stabilizing the line here in Svatova and Kremina. Yeah, it's, and got more, it's got more men coming. It's got the muddy season coming up. In a couple months, it's also got a much larger wave of the mobilized men reaching the front. And so, and it's got all the Iranian missiles just about yeah. to arrive. And so, and Russia is starting to see some effectiveness in its attacks on Ukraine's electrical infrastructure. And so I think if you're Russia, when you have so many things to potentially put your hope in, that's another reason not to yet resort to nukes. Mm. Yeah. So we're still some steps away from the escalatory ladder. We are still, uh, each side has reasons to be optimistic. And this is why there's not going to be anything sudden happening as, as far as like one side surrendering or one side using nukes because there's still something here. And the, the things we should be looking for, uh, you know, soon is going to be in the north in Kharkiv. And then the big thing is the big thing is Kherson. So that's the that's the thing we should look at for the days and weeks. Um, yeah, within the within the, the short term, we should expect. I, I think we know it's they're going to Ukraine's going to take. I think it's an inter- like how how well Russia does the. Um, Withdraw. Exactly. You know, if it can do any kind of urban warfare, I mean, that would be a big sign that it, you know, if it just collapses, if it's just like Kharkiv where they all just run away um, and they just don't even fight and that's, yeah. that's it. I mean, I think that's going to be a bad sign. I think the Russians are not going to be optimistic. Like, is, is, is Russia going to lose a lot of its equipment to Ukraine like it did in Kharkiv? You know, yeah. when, a, when it's a route and when the Russians are just running away as fast as they can, they abandon a lot of their equipment and, you know, capture the equipment. That's a double swing. Not only is Russia losing a tank, Ukraine's gaining one. And Ukraine has, reports are Ukraine's captured something like several hundred Russian tanks and Russian uh, armor of all kinds and, and artillery too. Now, yeah. I told you that Russia has its best troops in the Kherson region. And so actually, when we saw Ukraine making this significant advance in Kherson, it did not actually capture as much equipment here because the Russian soldiers were more disciplined and they didn't just run away in this region. They conducted a disciplined withdrawal and, and they either took their equipment out with them or they just destroyed it so it didn't fall into Ukrainian hands. So that's another thing we'll be looking at in the likely impending w- Russian withdrawal here. Are they going to be disciplined enough to get their troops out in good order to avoid it turning to, into a route and to avoid letting Ukraine capture a lot of Russian equipment? And it's a complex operation. And there are signs that Russia is is hoping to use undisciplined troops as as the lambs to the slaughter to protect the rest of them. And if that's the case, it's probably not a good plan. Yeah, the um, uh, that reminds me. Speaking of equipment, you you had this uh, stuff on. Uh, oh yeah, so we could that, take a look at this brief, briefly, just kind of to let people know where, where the situation with the casualties stands. Now, I, I want to say. What this is, is just a summary of Ukraine's own assessment of Russia's losses. And so I want to tell you which parts of this you can't trust at all, 
and which you can trust a bit more and to what degree, okay? So these are uh, Ukraine's assessments. And, and here you see uh, out of the, there's one part that's out of the number that Russia had initially committed to the invasion. And Ukraine claims that those are all gone for everything. And it's all, it's all about the reinforcements that Russia's digging into now. So first of all, when you get here to the aircraft and helicopters, you can basically just ignore these Ukrainian claims here. These mm. essentially aren't reliable at all. Uh, they're, they're probably roughly as unreliable as Russia's own claims about Ukrainian losses of aircraft. I think if you look at it, Russia claims to have destroyed Ukraine's entire air force three times over or something like mm -hmm. that, which begs the question, what are they flying then? Uh -huh. And, you know, here, I, I think that you'd have to divide these numbers by at least four or five to approach anything resembling the truth here. And part of this is that it's just a lot harder to know when you have fired a, a missile, like a man pad, man portable missile against a, a plane. It's really kind of hard to know whether you've even hit it. And if you have hit it, hard to know whether you destroyed it. And so I think Ukraine just kind of assumes, oh, we probably hit that plane. It's probably dead. But no, these are not really reliable at all. They don't reflect reality. The ships, yeah, that pretty much reflects reality. Uh, when, when a ship is attacked or sunk, you can pretty much tell. At the same time, ships aren't an enormous factor in this war. Mm. Now, over here, this is where things get more interesting. Tanks. Tanks and armored combat vehicles. These are actually some of the more reliable numbers that we can see from Ukra Ukrainian assessments of the damage that it's inflict on, inflicted on Russia. Now, maybe you want to discount these numbers by 20%, maybe even up to 30%. Probably not more. Probably more in the range of a 20% discount than 30%. Because with this, all throughout the war, especially at the beginning, we could, we could get visual confirmation of many of Russia's losses. Uh, and the, the guy who's doing this is Oryx, on the site Oryx. And you showed me a bunch of the assessments of the Oryx numbers. And so from the beginning of the war, on any given day, Ukraine would say, we've killed 20 Russian tanks. And then the next day, or a few days later, uh, Oryx would say, okay, I've got visual confirmation pictures right here of 15 dead Russian tanks. Mm -hmm. And so that's a sign that <clears throat> these claims are connected to reality. And the fact that we've only got pictures of 15 tanks dead on a day and, and Ukraine says we took out 20, that doesn't mean that Ukraine is lying about the remaining five, because you can't expect that every dead tank is going to have a picture of it. Yeah. And so here, these are roughly accurate. Maybe you want to discount the, these by 10 or 20%. Uh, and then here, when you get up to personnel, here, I think the, the number of Ukrainian assessment of killed is probably more, more accurate than the assessment of wounded. One thing that's interesting about this is that Ukraine, it is essentially decided to stop reporting prisoners of war. Uh, mm -hmm. This number has been hovering at a thousand ever since the beginning of the war, uh, and that's probably because you, Ukraine just doesn't want Russia to have the information about how exactly how many people it's captured. Maybe it doesn't want us to have that information. Uh, now, with with the killed, the wounded, what you have to understand here, I would bet that what Ukraine's doing 
first of all, the number of killed and wounded, it's probably including not just Russian regular soldiers. This probably includes everybody. This includes yeah. Wagner. This includes mobilized conscripts from, from Donetsk and Luhansk. Mm-hmm. And oftentimes when you see casualty reports, there's an ambiguity because sometimes people are talking about the Russian regulars alone. Sometimes they're including the conscripts from the Donbass. And a lot of the people who are dying are the conscripts from the Donbass. Mm-hmm. Those are the guys who are getting sent straight to the front lines. The, the, the Russia has decided, we'd rather have you die than people from Russia mm-hmm. itself. Mm-hmm. Now, the so- killed here is probably more accurate than the wounded, because I think what Ukraine is probably doing here is it's taking old wounded to killed ratios from World War II and other mm-hmm. wars. And oftentimes, the, the rule of thumb people use is for every three wounded, there's roughly one killed. And, and you can see that that corresponds roughly to the, to the calculations here. It's just mm-hmm. multiplying the killed by three. That's how you probably yeah. get this number. Is that, exa- is that exactly multiplied by three? Um, I don't know. That, that would be interesting. What's 68 times, 68 times three? Well, do it exactly. 67.94 times three. 204. So if you just use the standard ratio, you'd get 204. Oh, interesting. See that? Well, do, do, uh, that's why I wanted you to do it with the uh, uh, with the uh, with the with the do, do sixty seven thousand nine hundred forty times three, not six. Don't don't round sixty seven nine forty times three. Ah, it's exact. exact. It's exact. Yeah, three eight twenty. Ah, okay. So you, you can see exactly how Ukraine has arrived at this estimate. It is just applying the World War II calculation, the rule of yeah. thumb that there's three wounded for every killed. But mm-hmm. I do not think that's likely to be accurate in this war because Russia is not giving its injured troops uh, the same standard of medical care that both sides gave, tended to give in World War II. I thought you were going to say the opposite. I thought you were going to say technology has progressed, and so now we can save more lives, so it's going to be, no, it's no. Going to be better. No, if you just look at the videos, I mean, especially these Russian conscripts and the conscripts from the Donbass, You know, you see the videos of the Ukrainians dropping the grenades. At that point, it's every man for himself among the Russians. They they definitely are not adhering to the rule of leave no man behind. Uh, Mm. Everybody's just running oftentimes. And if a guy's wounded, he's left behind. They they don't want to stick around and drag him to help. And so I think that a fair number of Russian wounded are turning into Russian killed. And so the casual, the, the wounded to killed ratio is probably lower. It's maybe one to one or two to one. It's probably not three to one. And so maybe the killed number, maybe this is roughly accurate. Maybe you want to discount this by 10 or 20%, but there are probably a lot fewer wounded than this would say. Mm-hmm. The, uh, but the killed number, I mean, that's, that's massive, 67,940. I mean, do, we, do we have any idea that's real? Because that guy who had the, the video guy, he did not have those numbers, right? Do you have that, uh, do you have that link on you? Uh, I mean, when it comes to the killed, uh, it, you can't really get visual confirmation of, of that. Uh, I, I think one way they do that is that they kind of try to derive it from the destroyed tanks and armored personnel carriers. You would look at that and you look at the way it's blown up and you'd figure out how many people would be inhabiting it. And so th- there's, a, there's more gray area. There's more room for error here. But one thing we can do, we can take this as the upper limit of what's possible, right? Like there, there aren't going to be more killed than, than Ukraine is claiming. This is the max. And mm-hmm. then you can look at the U.S. and the, the British estimates of killed. 
And we have been saying that maybe somewhere in the neighborhood of 30,000, at least 30,000 of, of the Russians were killed. So the truth probably lies roughly in the middle of those numbers. You're probably looking at at least 40 or 50K Russians and Donbass conscripts killed. Yeah. And what, what proportion do we have any idea? It's probably, do you think it's mostly Donbass people or? Um, well, not the majority because there still are more regular Russian troops. But I mean, maybe you might be looking at 10 to 20,000 Donbass uh, soldiers mm-hmm. killed, maybe more closer yeah. to 10. And, yeah. and then the, the rest would be Russians. Yeah. So maybe 20, maybe. So th- at least. These are massive casualties by, by any standard. Yeah, that, that's right. Okay. Well, okay. So, yeah. So we'll, we'll put links to all of this. Um, and uh, yeah, I mean, this is going to keep going on for a while, it looks like. And uh, yeah, we'll keep doing these, these conversations and following up. Or anything else, Chris, you want to touch on or, or is that it? Nope. I, I think that's a lot to cover. It's a good place to leave it. Okay. Until next time. All right. Next time.